Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, along none other than John Tesh. John, how you doing? I'm well. You know, I love Freakonomics, but I don't have anything for my relationship, Gib. Can you help me? <laughs> yes. Our guest this week is Dr. Randy Ross, author of the book Relationomics, Another Portmanteau. Uh, and I love a good pun. I love a good portmanteau. Can you please explain portmanteau to those of us who don't know what you're talking about? I think I, I think I get it. It's but. where you take two words and you combine them and their meanings to form a third word. Uh-huh. So relationship economics, relationomics oh, yeah. is a portmanteau. Okay, like freakonomics, so freakonomics. Yeah, freaky economics, okay. freakonomics. Right. So this is relationship. This is not military intelligence. That would be a. That would be a. Uh, um, <laughs> that would be a, an oxymoron. Oxymoron. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Oh, good. So this is uh, this is awesome. And but you know what else? I mean, I wanted to ask you when I, I saw who you were interviewing. Is uh, is is there something earth shatteringly different in this? Well, you know, he, for, first of all, the what what Doctor Ross deals with is is the importance of relationship in everything that we do. Particularly, he he's a corporate coach, so he motivates people to be. We, everybody has a business plan when they start a company. You need a relationship plan for how you're going to take care of oh, and relate to good. your employees, uh, how you are going to take care of and relate to your customers and the people you come into contact with. But these methods of intentionality and accountability in your relationships and how you can be, and he also has like a rubric for how you measure yourself. He uses it also in his parenting and his married life. So this is something, these, these, this economics of your relationship are things that you can use in order to quantify and excel in all of your relationships, not just at work. This is a way that you can have a better marriage. This is a way you can be a better father or be a better mother, be a better spouse. Um, also, be a better employee or a better employer and create value in every interaction that you have. That's really right. what it comes down to. Is but, the economics is measuring the value. Because in the past, I feel like I've set those things apart. It's like I, I have... A way I do business, I have a way I parent, I have right. a way I deal with my, my spouse. So he's saying there's a there's there's a way to uh, work all of them with the same Basic, type of techniques. Basically, there's an there is a relationship approach that you should have to mm-hmm. every interaction, right. including your business interactions, including your personal interactions, and that's what he's going to outline in this conversation. I love it. So that's coming up uh, now. There is a, a Michelle uh, Gielan is a positive psychologist, speaking of uh, relational stuff, and she says that we need. To start our day from now on with three minutes of good news. We really do. She says that, that a lot of us, we we just absorb so much bad stuff that if we can start our day with three minutes of good news. She says that studies show the news we read or hear in the morning has a huge impact on our mood for the whole day. And being exposed to just three minutes of uplifting news raises happiness levels by 27 to 35% for at least eight hours. I have to tell you, I've been doing this thing lately and I know it's wrong, but I wake up in the morning, I get ready to take Lucy the dog out. Right, and I I go to uh, Google News, and it's just it, it's like the first seven stories always are about how the world's coming to look, an end. Look, you are uh, you were a, a beat reporter. You are an Associated Press, and a, do you have a Pulitzer as well? Or just no, I don't. You know, no, but, but but if you've got one, I'd love to have it. <laughs> You're an AP Award winning reporter. You know the old adage: if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's been all, and it's never been more true than now when most news organizations are in the click attention economy and they're trying to get your attention as much as possible. So people are going after these. They're always going to go after clicks. So they're going to have the most, uh, the most wild headlines that are going to be negative. But I've seen a real pushback from a lot of accounts online. There, I've seen like four different huge accounts that are just devoted to to good news. 
And so there's a whole, if you want to do it, you can create a news page for yourself on Instagram or, or on, uh, Listen, we, news, you know, you, just positive. News. You and I haven't talked about this and I want to get to this interview because it's going to be great, but can you tell me how to do that? I mean, if I go on Google news, how do, how do I, uh, how do I adjust it? So I'm just going to get good news and then may, I can dig for the bad news if I want it. Right. Uh, so but I don't want it to be the first thing that pops up. You've got to have some filters that you, you can right. filter your news and you can do it with search, which right. with search results. There's also a couple of, of, of really good, good news pages like tanks, good news. There's a memer called tank Sinatra and he's created, he's just a funny guy from like Philly or, uh, and he has created a whole page and I'll put a link to it in the show. Oh, notes, that's actually, great. Of just good news stories. Right? right, uplifting right. stuff like man saves kittens, little girl is cured from cancer, like yeah. those kinds yeah. of stories. Yeah, yeah. It's all it is. Right. And it's all uplifting stuff. And there are some other uplifting news sites, and I, I, can, I can send you a few of them. But the other thing that you do that you should keep doing <laughs> is you have those YouTube accounts of inspirational I conversations. I do. They're, and, yeah, they're great. And that is another great way yeah, to start your day. so much of that stuff. I made the mistake when, when I first signed up for Google News, I made the mistake of clicking the wrong stuff. So so the, the, I get you know I get all the uh, the, pr- the presidential news and and all of the Mueller's news and all mm-hmm. the rest of that stuff. But then the next thing I get is is Game of Thrones, Rock, Lin Manuel Miranda, and then uh, somehow the for, uh, the Kardashians are showing up. So I think I somehow clicked, I, <laughs> somehow. You I think, think that I, was an accident? Oh We're supposed I, to believe that. I think I said my, my headphones just fled, <laughs> flew off. I think I, I think I clicked on the wrong stuff. Anyway, one more thing from Michelle Geelan, then we're going to get to this interview. She says that you can also be the bearer of good news. If you start a conversation with a coworker with a yeah. positive topic, it's going to lift their mood and it'll strengthen your connection with them. You know, you're such a big fan of the subconscious mind stuff of you, you are. And, and even if you don't buy into the whole subconscious manifestation stuff, you are always going to become what you think about. And the more you fill yeah. your cup up with positivity and the more you exude positivity, how many people have we had on this show who talk about the importance of, of putting a positive spin on things? Look, the more you do that, the more people are going to view you in a positive light and the more you're going to look for things to be positive about. The more you, you, more you try to be grateful, the more you're going to have things to be grateful for. It's just, it's just the way we're wired. I love it. I love it. And I can't wait to hear your interview with Dr. Randy Ross, uh, author of the new book, Relationomics. Dr. Randy Ross, just want to thank you so much for being a part of Intelligence for Life, the podcast today. We appreciate your time. Absolutely, Gib. Thanks for uh, the opportunity to join you and your listening audience. Yeah, well, okay. So your latest book is Relationomics. I love a good portmanteau. I love that. So where, where does Relationomics come from and, and, and why? You have an extensive background in, in, in training and, and you've written a f- more than one book. Uh, so why, why this one? What does it mean? Well, Relationomics is just this whole idea that, that your best business is powered by healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny, Gib, you know, you would think that that's pretty much common sense, but I can assure you that practicing the principles that lead to healthy relationships mm. are not necessarily common practice, particularly within corporate circles. I, sure. I think there are a lot, of, a lot of reasons for that. Um, sometimes we just assume that when people get into their 20s and 30s that somehow they've mastered those elements that are necessary to bring healthy relationships to the table. And um, that's not true necessarily. Um, and also sometimes in, in corporate circles, we put more emphasis on the development of products and processes yeah. Yeah. and all of that rather than really investing in our people to help them create healthy environments. But here's what we know to be true, that people and organizations – thrive in relationally rich environments. 
And so the whole book is really about how do you create as a leader, how do you create relationally rich environments in which people are inspired to bring their best to work every day? Yeah, I think that's it's interesting you say that because, uh, well, one, because I knew you were going to say something along those lines, but two, but two, it's interesting you say that because I, I've read that almost every single major entrepreneur had had some time uh, in sales. Like it's one of the only jobs that almost every billionaire, except you know Zuckerberg, obviously not, but that almost every one of those guys has spent some time in sales. And everybody in sales will tell you, sales is all about relationships. It's all about leveraging relationships in order in order to grow. So I feel like there's there's a, a little bit of kismet there, right? Where where the best entrepreneurs and the best culture creators understand or come from a background where they had to rely on relationships in order to eat. That's right, and and healthy teams are just much more productive. And so that happens on the individual basis. You're talking about sales and, and connecting deeply with clients to bring value, but it also happens with teams. You know, it's interesting. We used to say that if someone uh, quit, they, they didn't quit a job, they quit on their manager. They quit on that, that yeah. relationship. Yeah. But now we're kind of twisting that ever so slightly saying people don't quit on their managers. They quit on a culture. Because it's not just a matter of how well they connect with the leader, but it's also how well do they connect with the other people on the team. So what it really boils down to is how well um, do our team members play in the sandbox together. Mm -hmm. And that's all about creating healthy, relationally rich environments. Why, do, why does that matter so much? I mean, why You said that people think that it's product focus is so important. and That, that seems logical. Why, why are relationships more important? And why I you pay me more would I not stay at a job instead of worrying about my relationships? Well, uh, we know through research that um, that social support is probably one of the most important things that that will cause a people to stay uh, mm. in any location. You know, we we know through research that monetary remuneration is not the single most important thing that drives and motivates people. Right. That really what drives and motivates them is feeling like they're a sense. They sense that they're a part of a whole, that they maybe work like a team, but love like a family, but not a dysfunctional family, right? right they want to right, be a right, part right, right. of a group where they feel like they're deeply connected. And uh, what we say all the time is that, that relationships catalyze growth. And so if we want to grow as individuals or as teams, that growth is entirely dependent upon how healthy our relationships mm. are. Mm. You know what's funny? Uh, you know, you, this is you're using this in a professional context, but I've I've talked to a handful of happiness researchers and um, psychologists, and one of and and even longevity experts. And one of the one of the through lines with all of them is that your social connections are as important to your long term health as as diet. You know, and, oh. and and that's just life. That's not even that's not even career. There, there's no doubt about that. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. There's a, a study that has been conducted by Harvard University. It's called the, the Grant and Gluck study. They've been going on this now for 75 years. So they're almost in the third generation of the study. But they took two very diverse populations and they've studied uh, what has caused those individuals to um, uh, not only succeed, but what's um, added to their longevity and their uh -huh. happiness right and and ha hands down the single uh, decisive and definitive outcome of this research that's gone on over the last 75 years is the people who are happier and healthier are those who have strong and good relationships mm -hmm. and that's that's the bottom line because 
we all need healthy relationships in order to thrive, not only just personally, but in business as well. Yeah, I, and I think, okay, so I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's a, that in, in today's environment too, when I, I, I've talked to technology experts and they would say that so much of our interactions are done, so many of our interactions are done online in this sort of false way that it, um, that it undermines the actual value of interpersonal communication, that we have these sort of fake things that we say scratches the itch, it's like, but it's like having, um, it's like having sugar where, where you're, with, with no nutritional value, where you're, just, you're getting this thing, but it's not actually scratching, it's not really hitting the, the right spot in terms of your psychology, and that we really need to emphasize these in-person interactions. Well, you're talking about technology kind of um, alienating us. And it's so true because we can have thousands of friends on social media, but right. really know, know no one deeply. And be super lonely. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's also reinforced in society this idea of, of individuality. Mm. You know, I, I want to stand alone, stand apart. The, lone the problem wolf. is that that accentuates isolationism and, right. and that's not healthy for anybody. Right. And so um, back to this idea that that relationships catalyze growth, you know, there's this philosophy of life that we refer to in relationomics called Luciferianism. That's a okay. big fancy word, but it's actually a philosophy of life. And, and here's how it breaks down. It's a philosophy that says that you can attain self-enlightenment as a result of your own individual effort. Interesting. In other words, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can mm -hmm. make the most of yourself apart from relationships. And it emphasizes the individual's human will. And um, it, there's a great in, emphasis on individuality. Well, here, yeah. here's the problem with that, Gib. Yeah. It goes all the way back, whether or not you believe the Genesis account or you are ascribed to the, uh, the account of creation as it's found in the Bible, but Luciferianism shows up in Genesis, and here's how it happens. Um, as the story goes, God created Adam and Eve, and he mm -hmm. placed them in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And there they had paradise. He provided for them everything that was necessary for them to enjoy life and to, to thrive in this idyllic environment. But um, one day, uh, the, the Satan in the form of the serpent, uh, Lucifer appears and he challenges Eve and he says, you know, did God really say that you couldn't eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, that's right. We've got everything in the garden except for that. And he goes, ah, but God's keeping something back from you because in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the good and evil in that day, you will become like God. You will know everything. You will become right. like God without having to have a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And that's the essence of Luciferianism. But what happened was, here's the question, why would they need to know evil? Mm -hmm. Everything they had ever known was good. Right. Everything that they needed was at their fingertips in a relationship. But when they chose to eat of the fruit of good and evil, what happened was they attempted to become like God apart from relationship with God. And oftentimes we try to attain maturity or our own you know sense of uh, self-fulfillment apart from relationships and it can't happen because in the day that they ate of that fruit they ruptured the relationship and it's the relationship that leads to maturity mm -hmm. because we can't attain maturity on our own 
Um, and the reason for that is multifaceted, but one of the most simple ways to explain it is we all have blind spots. Mm-hmm. You know, those are things that, that we can't see, but everybody else sees in us. Mm-hmm. And unless we're involved in deep, rich relationships with people who are willing to take the risk to give us the kind of feedback that we need to grow, we're not going to grow. So that's why we say it's, it's relationships that catalyze growth. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think too, you know, one of the, one of the interesting thing you, you were, you were saying earlier on in that it was, um, this idea that that you can you can grow on your own and you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which then has a corollary, um, the implication of the of the contrapositive, which is if you're not doing well, uh, you are you are in fact not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. You are not doing the work that needs to be done. And while that may be true, it's not necessarily true. And especially when you're going through something kind of bad in your life, whether it's an addiction or any kind of, like you said, blind spots or any kind of bad behavior, I feel like that's where a community is really valuable. And we're designed, to your point, to need that community in order to get out of that. Well, life was never meant to be a solo sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we are designed and crafted to be involved in community. And it's the deeper and richer those community relationships are, the more support that we garner. You know, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the there's an old Frank and Ernest cartoon. I don't know if you're. I don't even know listeners. what Frank and Ernest is. I know Calvin <laughs> so, and Hobbes. Okay, well, that's close. Well, <laughs> well, Frank and Ernest. It was a single frame cartoon of okay. two two vagabonds that you know traipsed about, and there are all kinds of life lessons. And in one of those cartoons, Frank, they're standing near the railroad tracks, and Frank's pulling on his suspenders, and he says, he says, you know, I guess you could just say that I'm a self-made man. <laughs> and in earnest in response says this is classic. He says, then that clearly demonstrates the horrors of unskilled labor. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so I think a lot of us, we think we can, you know, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps mm-hmm. and make something of ourselves. But that's, that's a falsehood. And I, I meet leaders all the time that make statements like this. They'll say, well, you know, it's just lonely at the top. But the reality is, and here's what I tell leaders all the time, if it's lonely at the top, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Because it should never be lonely. And if it's lonely at the top, then it's true that we may carry a bigger sense of a burden, but we've got to be able to share that with other people, regardless of how we ascend within the life of any organization. We've got to be deeply connected to be firmly grounded. And then, and then, and you're also going to be, you're going to be a better employee if you understand and you're connected to all the other departments. And if you're at a large multifaceted organization, to your point, if you, if you have your head down the whole time and you're just doing bureaucratic pencil pushing, you're not really going to understand what the overall goals of the company are, right? Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. So, so I, okay. So let's say we buy into this idea and, you know, put a We'll put a pin in, in finishing this argument for a second, but let's say we buy into this idea that relationships are important and that creating the kind of culture where relationships are uh, are nurtured and are valued appropriately. Uh, how does a manager in a struggling company go about creating that? And then when when you're done with that, I'm going. I just want you to like give you a heads up. I'm going to pivot into how an individual can apply that to their own life. Well, that's that's great because they actually blend together because these principles are transcendent. And so whatever you can apply in the personal and prof- in the personal realm, it applies professionally and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But um, so let me talk to you about a couple of principles uh, that we uh, set forth in the book. And one of those is just simply intentionality. Mm-hmm. E- everything we do has to be done with a sense of intentionality in order for us to get where we want to go. Otherwise, we all fall prey to drift. And uh, just like culture, just like relationships, 
you're going to have relationships. They're either going to be by design mm-hmm. or they're going to be by default. Right. And default you, is a design. It is. And so if, if you have intentionality and you're thinking through how can I make this better, um, then you're likely to uh, arrive at the destination that you desire. But if you're drifting, it's just by default. You're not giving it reflection and thoughtful pursuit, then you may wake up one day and your relationship's not where you want it to be. So mm-hmm. one of the first questions I always ask leaders is, hey, you've, you've got a business, so therefore you have a business plan, right? Right. I'll say, of course I do. And I say, then what's your relational plan? And they look at me with a blank stare because they don't have a relational plan. I said, no, mm-hmm. what's your, let's take, you can take that in, in the realm of with your spouse. You can take that in the realm of your team members, your colleagues. What's your relational plan mm-hmm. in each one of those settings? And let me just give you a quick, simple way to develop that plan because most people don't know how. And it's so easy. It's so simple. It's stupid. But it's, it's, uh, it's profound and it's impactful. Let's just take my relationship with my wife, Luann. Okay. We actually had this conversation. It's very vaudevillian. Take my wife, please. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Well, we actually had this conversation not long ago over dinner. What what you want to do is take any topic that's germane to that relationship for for a spouse. It could be parenting. You know, it could be communication or finances or Mm -hmm. intimacy or emotional connection. Any of those. Just take one of those. And our topic that we chose one night for our dinner date was communication. Mm -hmm. I asked her this question. Okay. On a scale of one to 10, with one being abysmal and 10 being stellar, how would you rate our communication? And then she, she rates that, and I don't, I, don't, I don't debate, I don't ask for explanation. Then the follow-up question is this. Okay, if you rated a six or a seven, then what would it take for me, what would I need to do to help move our communication from a seven to a 10? Mm-hmm. And she gives me her thoughts and her ideas on how it could be improved. And that becomes my plan. That becomes my relational plan. She gives me those steps that I need to take in that particular area. So for the next 30 or 60 or 90 days, I'll work on exactly what she told me I need to work on to move it to a 10. And then I'll check back in and go, okay, you know, two months ago, you said it was at a six or a seven. I've been working on that. Now, where are we today? Mm -hmm. It's a simple, simple way to move things forward. And uh, it's just a, a, a great approach to developing a plan to move the relationship intentionally in a better direction. So you can do that at work. You can do that at home. You can do that with your kids. You can do that really in any area of life mm-hmm. to develop a strong plan. But the, the key is you've got to be intentional. Yeah. The second thing is... I, I feel like inten- I'll let you this thing, but I feel like intentionality is, is a word that's bandied about right now quite a bit. And I, and I really like how concrete that idea of intentionality was where... You kind of use the military adage of, uh, of failure to uh, failing to plan is is planning to fail, um, and 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 you also talk about I also, I don't I want people to miss that you talk about enumerating where certain aspects of your life are like enumerating that is is really important because it gives you a rubric against which to judge progress in one direction or another. Just like stepping on a scale will help you know if you're losing weight or not. You can't know if you're losing weight if you're not weighing yourself. That's true. And it, just a word of caution on that, Gib, for all your listeners, <laughs> uh, especially for the guys in the audience that may be listening. Don't don't become too uh, disconcerted or frustrated if your spouse may mark you two or three points lower than you yourself might evaluate that particular dimension. <laughs> yeah, okay? I think if you've been married it, more than a year, I, I'm pretty sure you know that there might be a disconnect on some of those. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, because but that's not where the that's not where the gold lies. The gold always lies in the follow up question of how can right. we make it better. Right. Right. So uh, 
So that's the key. Just don't, don't, don't fall prey to drift. Mm -hmm. Because right. if you do, you'll wind up at a destination you usually don't desire. Right. And so then that, and intentionality is the cure for that. Okay. So intentionality is part one. What's part two? So part two is humility. And oh, humility easier is just, said than done. Oh, for sure. Because again, this is one of those words that we throw about, but very right. few people know how to adequately define humility. But here's right. what I would say. Humility is the ability to embrace your humanity, mm -hmm. uh, to recognize that we're all broken. We all have faults. We all mm -hmm. have flaws. Mm -hmm. And it's the ability both to embrace your strengths uh, those God-given areas of giftedness, but it's also a quick acknowledgement of our, our weaknesses and our failures. It's mm -hmm. the, it's feeling comfortable in our own skin, no matter how freckled with failure that may be. And um, when we can walk confidently in our own skin, we don't have to self-promote. We don't have to self-protect. Um, we don't have to posture. When we're comfortable in our own skin, then we can be authentic and we can be transparent. And that's what's necessary to engender trust. And so when we're authentic and transparent, it engenders trust. And trust is foundational for all healthy relationships. But we can't get there without a spirit of humility. So it's just embracing our humanity. That's the second part. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think what, one interesting thing, when you, when you equate humility to humanity, um, there is a certain, uh, there is, again, an underlying corollary there, which is that uh, that old adage to err is is human, right? That that this idea that we all have blemishes that that built into the human condition is this notion of 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 some sort of failure, and to um, to deny that reality in your interactions is basically to be lying and uh, lying, telling a lie that everybody knows is untrue or everybody should know is untrue, because we'll never see that person who doesn't have at least a skeleton in, in his or her closet. Well, there's no doubt about that. That's what makes us human. We're all broken. And, um, and recognizing that frailty gives us more grace to deal with other people in right. a far more compassionate and, and patient sort of a way. And, you know, one of the things that keeps, I think, organizations in a state of, of unhealth is when people continue to posture and pretend that they're perfect because mm -hmm. pre pretense is extremely uh, draining emotionally. Yeah, yeah sure. Not, not just on the person who's trying oh, yeah. to keep up that front, but on everybody else because everybody else knows, hey, you're living behind a veneer. Right. And and when that veneer can come down, that means we can just more deeply connect with one another. Yeah, it's like it's like when you're in a if you're in a job interview and somebody asks you, "What's your biggest weakness?" It's like, I care too much. I work too hard. It's like, come on. What's your big, yeah. if you don't know what your biggest weakness is, then, you know, then, then, then we probably shouldn't hire you. But I, like when you, when you do the fake weakness, I think, I think hopefully every hiring manager out there can see through that. Well, and that gets back to that. Do we have people in our lives that speak the truth? Because it all begins with self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we have people who love us and they're committed to us, then they'll point those areas out. It's interesting in, in our other book, Remarkable, we talk about a remarkable culture and I love our three-pronged trilogy that talks about a remarkable culture is a place where people believe the best in one another. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. therefore, they want the best for one another, and they expect the best from one another. Right. And that's a culture where people are free to be who they are, and they have the capacity to grow together. So, so say that again. You want to be with one another? For that, that, yeah, a place where people believe the best in one another. In one another. They want the best for one another, uh -huh. and they expect the best from one another. Okay. So you've got trust first, right? 
connection and compassion second mm-hmm. and accountability third. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's important that it flows in that, in that way too, because if you try to have high accountability before there's trust and connection, then people are going to feel used. Right. 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 So, they, they're going to feel, they're going to feel overmanaged there. Yes. Oh yeah. I hear you. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. I mean, like think about it. In, if you're in, an, I mean, taking this idea of, of matching the idea of the institution as well as, um, or, or the firm, as well as in your, in your personal relationship. So that's the equivalent of being in a marriage with somebody who without demonstrating love or affection is constantly telling you or trying to find out if you're cheating on them. And that's, mm. and it's like, uh, there's no, there, at some point there's no conversation that's being, that's having, there's no relationship. It's just becomes that person dominating your life and, and not necessarily having an enjoyable or, uh, just wanting to know where you are at all times, as opposed to making that flow from an actual accountability with one another from an actual love. Right. Because when we believe the best in each other, then that states that we, we have confidence that the other person is going to follow through in their convictions. They're going to follow through and be a person of integrity. We believe the best in them because we give them the benefit of the doubt. If we're always moving around in a way that's skeptical or trying to catch them doing things wrong, that, that becomes problematic. I mean, it's uh, back to Ken Blanchard is one of my all-time favorites. Mm-hmm. and uh, Who wrote the, the foreword to your newest book, Relationomics? Well, there you go. Thank you very much. Uh, but Ken taught us a long time ago in the One Minute Manager that if we really want productive teams, we need to walk around and catching people doing things right. Right, right. Now, we're always, you know, what I was told as leaders, you know, we have to intercept the entropy at its earliest phase. In other yeah. words, look for where it's going wrong and get it back yeah. on track. But, but the reality is if we can learn to affirm people, catch them doing what's right, we'll get more of what we pay attention to. Uh-huh. And so, you know, we want to we want to move around and affirm people in every way that we can. That's not to say we turn a blind eye to bad behavior because yeah. that has to be addressed and confronted as well. But but the key is the more uh, of a positive atmosphere that we can create. Not, and this applies, again, in the home as much as it applies oh, in the office. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling this for my parenting, but keep going. Absolutely, because what's one of the biggest mistakes we make as parents? It's interesting. Research um, tells us that most people— uh, have a, a, uh, a lower sense of self-esteem because 82%, check this out, Gib, 82% of the messaging that we receive from birth to 18 is negative in nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. What's the first thing that, we, that a child hears? It's no. Yeah. Don't, don't touch that. Right. No, don't do that. No, 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 no. And even as the kids get older, a lot of the messaging from parents and teachers and coaches and all the people in their world tends to be negative. And I even fall prey to this myself. I'm guilty because my son will come home and he'll have a report card with four four A's, two B's, and a C. And you what talk do I, about the C. Exactly. Yeah. And so why do we do that? Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we point out the faults and the flaws first when we should celebrate the successes. Oh, man, four A's. Are you kidding me? That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Because as we accentuate that, what are they going to be inspired to do? Right. They're going to be inspired to get five A's. They're going to be inspired to get six A's. There you go. And That's what, it. And what, what I find, you know, and, and to your point, like you'll, you'll go where the attention is given and, and how many parenting books talk about, uh, not that it's just about parenting. I understand it's about the firm in general, but, but how many parenting books talk about how you, when your kid is acting out, they're doing it for attention. So if you only ever, if you only ever uh, uh, undermine 
negative attention, by negative behavior, and that becomes the only way they get attention, it becomes sort of a, a, a bad cycle where they begin to perform poorly just because they get attention for it. It becomes an attention-seeking behavior, and, and, and the actual behavior that you're trying to correct isn't there, as opposed to, to your point again, when you reinforce positive behavior, that becomes where they get their attention, and they will seek that more. Now, look, there are all kinds of underlying psychological issues if they, if they if they are always trying to seek your approval, but it, it does create a healthier dynamic. Well, to your point, they they want attention, mm-hmm. and so what are we going to give them attention for? And and the the fact is, if we give them attention for the good things that they do, they'll have a drive and a desire mm-hmm. to do more good things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, so just to, to to recap, we have intentionality, mm-hmm. humility. That's the first. Yep. And then, and the, uh, hey, go ahead. The, the third is accountability. Accountability, right. Now, accountability, this is big, especially for work environment, because accountability has to do with this idea of feedback. How, how well do we receive and do we give feedback? Because feedback is the breakfast of champions. And, and mm-hmm. the key is that we not only need to learn how we Sorry, receive Wheaties. feedback well. That's right. We not only need to receive feedback well, but we need to constantly seek feedback. Mm-hmm. And leaders are not so good at doing this, I've discovered, that we're we're good at giving feedback to others, but we don't often ask for feedback from those that we serve. And so um, here's a great question I think leaders should ask on a regular basis. Um, what is it like for you to be on the other side of me? In other words, what kind of a leader am I? Give me suggestions and ideas on how I could lead you better. Mm. Now, if you're not accustomed to doing that in the life of an organization, I'll just tell you right now, at first, you're not going to get honest answers because mm-hmm. they're going to wonder, okay, if I'm truly honest, is, are there going to be punitive measures? Can I really be candid? But if you ask that question regularly and if we receive that feedback well, then what happens, Gib, is that we can actually create open loops of continuous feedback in real time that will help our organizations become both self-coaching and self-correcting. And I think that's key to higher levels of performance. So then our team members begin to assume responsibility and accountability with one another. And that doesn't have to happen through, you know, performance management because it happens through personal relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. So like if, if you're, if you're connected to somebody, they're always going to hear things better. They're always, if you, if you have, it's 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 the, the sandwich rule you know you always say one good thing and then give the criticism and then follow up with another good thing because the, how they're going to hear the criticism is in the context of 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 positivity so like if i if we have a working relationship if we have constant valuable communication when there is a crisis when there is an issue then we have the context within which to operate and to be able to correct negative things mistakes True. and 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 problems that are definitely going to appear yeah, and, and just to add to that, what I would say is it's, it's interesting to me um, how we have had to, in organizational life, we've had to institutionalize behaviors that we've not been able to uh, master relationally. In other words, we've got performance reviews, mm-hmm. you know, we've got annual, mm-hmm. annual mm-hmm. or quarterly reviews, we've got improvement plans. Well, none of that would even be necessary if we just had deeper relationships right. where we created these open loops of feedback and it just occurred naturally within the life of the organization. Yeah. One of the challenges that we, we face is that most people don't receive feedback well. 
And one of the things that we wanted to emphasize in this book was some keys and principles to help individuals get to the place that they were able to receive feedback better because only in receiving feedback is there the opportunity for growth. Yeah, and when you when you only have the annual, it's like teaching to the test. When you only have the annual review, it becomes this it becomes this thing, uh, or these performance reviews become these these milestones that you are trying to that you're trying to game as opposed to as opposed to really creating and generating actual value in the relationships in your organization. And and again, I know we keep talking about organization, but I really do hear you say that this applies also to your family life and this applies also to your interpersonal relationships and your individual relationships. Oh, absolutely, because we ought to be asking all the time. It's interesting. Um, I've got I've got three boys and, and a and a girl. Uh, we've got four kids in the family. And, and uh, you see uh, four kids, two books. You're a prol- prolific individual. <laughs> well, here's the funny part. I've got three boys, and I, raising boys is fairly easy, I think. You uh-huh. know, for boys, all you have to do is wrestle with them regularly, feed them occasionally, and they're pretty good. Because if you, you, know, if you wrestle with a boy and, and hit him occasionally, he knows you love him. But <laughs> when, when I had my daughter... It scared me to death because I didn't know I didn't know how to rear a, a daughter. I didn't I didn't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so um, a mentor of mine said, "Hey, here's what you need to do on a regular basis. You need to take your daughter out for a father daughter date, and y'all just need to talk and connect. And one of the best questions you can ask is, "Hey, how am I doing?" Which is another way of saying, "What's it like to be on the other side of me?" And right, so from right. a very it's early the same conversation. age, yeah, I started having this conversation with my daughter Lindsay. And I'd say, hey, baby, you know, what, what is it like to have me as a dad? I mean, I do that so regular. She began to roll her eyes at me. But every single time we had that conversation, mm-hmm. she would affirm me in a few areas. Mm-hmm. And then she'd always get around to saying, you know, though, one of the things that you might want to consider is, and then we have a meaningful conversation about some way in which we can connect in a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, Gib, if those conversations have made me a better parent, because Without that kind of real-time feedback, I wouldn't know if I was doing it well or not. But right. here's, here's yeah. the outcome. Just in simply me asking her that question, it caused her to realize that I was deeply concerned about how well we were relating. Mm-hmm. And I, I talk to a lot of uh, moms and dads who have challenges and difficulty with their kids, and and I think we miss it so often at this point because we blow it. And our kids can tell us how we're blowing it if we're just willing to talk and listen at that point. Yeah. And and even to this day, she calls on a regular basis and, and will ask for my advice. And she's 25 years old, but mm-hmm. she calls me regularly. And that I can't tell you how that makes me feel as a father to know that we're connected like that. Yeah. And it all comes about as a result of making sure that we've got the deep, heartfelt connection that began when I asked her, how can I be a better dad for you? So on the same vein, we need to constantly be asking our people at work, you know, how can I be a better cheerleader for you? How can I serve you better? What what can I do to enhance your work environment? What resources can I provide? What emotional support can I give? How can I be a better leader? And if we'll listen to that, really absorb that and act on it, it'll make a huge difference with our teams. Yeah. I mean, what I like about that question is it kind of embodies all three of your major points together. It is, it is intentional, it is humble, and it, it, and there is an implied accountability into it, in it. So it, that really is like, not to say that it's the perfect question, but it is the most, it is the most Dr. Ross infused question uh, you could possibly ask. Well, I appreciate that. 
And, and the last point, the last principle is just the principle of sustainability, Gib. Mm-hmm. And very simply stated, it, it, it's this. Leadership must be about something beyond self-interest, greater than self-promotion, and more noble than self-service. In other words, leadership at its essence is not about us, but it's about the people that we have the privilege of leading and serving. It's about what are we doing to help make them successful? It's not a matter of driving our agenda, but it's how do we help raise them up to maturity? How can we love them so deeply that we lead them well? Mm-hmm. And, um, and we have to always remember that people, they don't want to work for us. They want to work with us. Right. And when we get that piece right, then we can lead with love. Yeah. And, and, I, th- and I feel like, too, maybe, maybe that, that worldview is, is changing. I think we went through a period as a, as a, in Western society where uh, a long time ago, there was this sense that the firm takes care of their employees in a, in a, like we the pension plans and and uh, uh, these you, you'd work for the same company for thirty years and and there was a relationship with the employees that was that was very intentional um, and I and I think that as as things have changed in in the corporate environment, people are much more nomadic now. People don't have that bond to to their companies they they say i think the average time they stay in a job is i think it's like four years is that right is that four years? Mm-hmm. yeah if that long yeah yeah so so you you don't have that sort of same all of these sort of ingrained relationships between the company and the individual i mean don't people forget kaiser permanente the the healthcare system was originally a healthcare system generated for the kaiser steel company it was it was meant as a way of taking care of the employees as a part of that relationship that you're talking about and i feel like Companies have have lost a lot of that, uh, and I think it's coming back. I think you see it in, in particular in the, in certain um, high leverage, uh, high skilled labor markets like the, like technology, where where uh, certain performing individuals can switch very easily. So these companies double down on making their environment as comfortable and as conversational as possible, and people roll their eyes and say, "Oh, millennials!" But I mean, how different is that from? The Kaiser permanent Kaiser having uh, rec centers and and healthcare for their for their for their employees, you know, a hundred years ago. Right. Well, you make a great point, and, and the way I put it is this: when I'm speaking at a conference, I'll sometimes ask, "So, how many employees do you have?" And leaders will give their various numbers, and I'll say, "You're all wrong because you no longer have employees in the sense mm-hmm. of the word that you were describing: long-term commitment." I'll give you my time. You give me the benefits because what you have right now are free agents. Mm-hmm. The market mm-hmm. is flooded with free agents. And right. It's the era of free agency. Your, exactly. Yeah, yes, that's right. And so they're going to play for your franchise for a season, however long that season may be. And then they're going to back up and they're going to reevaluate whether or not they're going to sign up again. And a lot of their willingness to stay with any franchise is based upon what we're talking about here, how healthy and how deep are those relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that at the, at the top of this interview, in the nice little bit of cyclic uh, conversation, you mentioned at the top of this interview how um, how people will stay for a relationship and they will leave when relationships go bad. Well, we we know that money is not the primary motivator for most people. I mean, if 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 we pay people within ten percent of what others are offering, the, the what really keeps people engaged is the health of the culture, which is driven by the relationships. And so that's what we have to focus on. I tell people or leaders all the time that culture is the single most important differentiating factor 
that you have. And that applies to your person, your personal life as well. Like you, if you're dating, you create a culture around you, and that is an important part of what people will find attractive in you. So, to that point, um, you know, your culture is uh, wherever people get together. You're going to have a culture, and we need to consider consider the fact that either in that culture you're going to be a value creator, or you're going to be a value extractor. Mm-hmm. And those who create great cultures are those that understand that what we need to constantly strive to do is to create and bring as much value to everybody else as we possibly can, as opposed to posturing ourselves to extract as much value for ourselves as we can. I mean, sometimes we talk about that in terms of uh, a scarcity versus an abundance mentality. You know, scarcity mentality says there's only so much to go around. So therefore, I have to get to the table to get as much as I can for right. myself if I'm going to survive. But the problem with that mentality is if everybody rushes to the table to get as much as they can for themselves with blatant disregard for everybody else, it won't be too long till there's nothing left on the table. And when there's mm-hmm. nothing left on the table, game over, go home. But if we all bring more to the table than we take away, mm-hmm. an abundance mentality says that then there will be a surplus created at the end of the day that can be shared by all of those who help to create that value. Right. If you and create so, more value than you take away, then by definition, they just there will be, I think I believe that's the pigeonhole principle of combinatorics, but by definition, there will be more value on the table uh, than when you got there. That's exactly right. And so when we create uh, cultures of value creation, then your value extractors become very obvious and, and eventually can be marginalized. Interesting. Interesting. And, and, and how do you, if you're an individual at a, a, and you want to be this kind of value creator, uh, not, not, not if you're the manager, but if you're an individual, how do you start to find ways to create additional value wherever you might be? Are you ready for this? It's, it's not I don't know if hard. I'm ready for it. I'm, I don't know <laughs> if I'm ready, but let's see it. You find the biggest problem you can possibly find and you solve it. That's, like, that's prison rules. You find the that's biggest it. guy in the yard and you knock him out. Because <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing. To create value or to leave a positive wake, find the biggest problem you could possibly find and solve it. Because the bigger the problem that you solve, the more value you create, the more value you create, the more invaluable you become. So if you really want to become a value creator, then embrace the problems that come your way. The, the biggest challenge is most people deflect responsibility for problems. Right, right, right. right. I, I, didn't, I didn't create that, so therefore I'm not going to clean that up. And, and here's the thing. An excuse, an excuse is a promise that you make to yourself that you're going to have to deal with it again. Right. But an excuse just simply means I'm not taking responsibility right. to make it better. So instead— I change this. Take responsibility to make it better. Find the problem. Fix the problem. And in doing that, you'll become a value creator. Now, if I mean that's that's sort of a flip on its head. That's still the negative mindset. You're still looking for the downside in order to fix. Is that is that problematic against against what we were talking about before, or is that really only in reinforcing others' behavior? Well, I think that's only in reinforcing others' behavior because you're not looking to fix a fixed blame. You're looking to fix the problem. Mm. And so, when you intercept a problem and you're willing to roll your sleeves up and fix it then that's when you're able to create value. So you look for problems to fix them, not to complain about them. Because mm-hmm. every organization has problem identifiers. You know, people who raise their hand and say, oh, we got another problem. But what we need to do is we need to turn problem identifiers into problem solvers. Because what happens when we do that, then we have a whole culture, not of consumers, but of contributors. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. 
we, we move them to become creators of value rather than just consumers who are striving to get as much as they can for themselves. Right, 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 right. Right. And so, so by being, so, so by being problem oriented and, and finding those large problems to solve, even though it is a negative version of things, you can still flip it on its head and say like, uh, make, make it positive. So like, if you if you want to generate revenue or start a new project, what you're doing is you're solving a problem for the company in that your your their cash flow is too low, right? Not every company has a low cash flow problem, but 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 if you if you're developing a new project, you are solving a cash flow problem for them. Well, and here's how, here's what I would say: seek to to create the largest positive wake that you can. So, are you creating a positive wake? The way you create a positive wake is in solving problems. Mm-hmm. How much good are you bringing to the table? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that's the key. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love it. All right. And, and you can apply that too to your relationships, right? Like if you, what's the biggest problem? What 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 is what do I hear my my spouse complain about the most? Where uh, you know what is the biggest problem around the house? Is it that the kids are never in bed on time? Is it that our checkbook is never balanced or whatever? You know what what is the biggest problem? And, and you solve that. And you begin to create value for yourself. I know it's a weird, it's it's weird to use these these terms against uh, against your personal relationships, but it's, I think it's apt, right? You begin to create value for uh, you begin to create value in the family around you. Well, because when we begin to create value, and I think that's a just good verbiage to attach to it, mm-hmm. because what I want to do is I want to create as much value for my spouse as I possibly can. If we mm-hmm. want to take it back to that relationship, you know, my wife has an emotional bank account. Mm-hmm. And if that emotional bank account is full, then life is good. Happy wife, happy life, right? Mm-hmm. If mama ain't happy, ain't ain't nobody happy. Mm-hmm. If, if dad's not happy, then nobody cares. Just send him on a fishing trip. But, you know, the point is, is that if I make more deposits into her emotional bank account than I right. make withdrawals, right. if I create more value for right. her than I extract from her, uh-huh. the bank account's going to be rich. Our relationship's going to flourish. Yeah. But the reverse is true as well. If I... If I seek my own benefit rather than focusing on hers, if I extract more from her than I bring to her, it won't be too long until the bank account is dry and we may be relationally bankrupt. So I'm constantly looking for ways that I can become a value creator. And again, one of those ways that I do that is to get a relational plan, which sometimes looks at the deficit, but seeks to bring more value in those areas so I can plug that gap and increase that from a seven to a 10. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I still, I still, I'm still struggling with this, this idea, the, the deficit mindset, um, transition, right? Like I know that it, I understand that it's important. Like, I guess maybe the key is, is to, is to switch it. When you're, when you're talking to other people, you want to look for positive reinforcement. When you're looking to find value, you want to look at, um, you want to look at deficit fixing, you know, uh, well- I think both are I think both are necessary. One of the things we talk about in relationomics is this need to have raw conversations when performance mm-hmm. is less than stellar. Right. How do you engage in a raw conversation? That's that nitty gritty tough conversation that is both hard to hard to hear but also hard to deliver. Mm-hmm. But I think those are those are necessary in order for us to grow. So what I'm not trying to suggest is that everything needs to be flowery and fluffy and good. It's not the self-esteem. Let's pump everybody up, you know, with no, with no real substance, because I think self-esteem is based upon self-worth and self-worth is only elevated when that person really brings something significant to the table and contributes something to other people. And so there has to be substance there. I'm not talking about just 
just uh, smoke and mirrors. But when we truly are able to help individuals understand that the more value they bring to the table, the more they're able to contribute to the conversation, the more that we're able to crystallize each other's character and Mm -hmm. live in closer community and sharpen each other in the process. That's what I'm talking about. And sometimes, you know, even as iron sharpens iron, it gets uncomfortable. Sparks fly, right? But it makes us sharper and keeps keeps us on the cutting edge. Well, there's no there's no such thing as sharpening without winnowing, right? You can't you can't sharpen something without removing something in the process. That's right. I mean, that and is- sometimes we have to help, you know, cut off those dead branches so that we become more prosperous um, relationally and and effectively. Yeah. Yeah, wow, I think that's incredible. And you know what? I think this is as as good a place as any to uh, to 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 wrap things up. I first of all want to say thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Randy Ross. The book is Relationomics: Business Powered by Relationships, and obviously we it's clearly take it also powers it's also relationships powered by relationships. You can I'll put a link to where you can buy the book in the show notes. Uh, one other thing I like to ask everybody is is where can where can they follow up with you? Uh, probably the easiest is just drrandyross.com. Link to that website also in the show notes. And uh, do you have social media accounts? We do. Uh, again, Dr. Randy Ross is the best way to reach us on social media as well. All right. So links to the social accounts as well as the website and the books in the show notes. And there's a, here's a question that I ask to everybody that I talk to. What is one thing people can start doing today to make their life better? Mm. One thing that they one can start habit, one key habit. Are doing today. Here it is, and it's a big one. But ask for continual feedback. Ooh, ask Ooh. for continual feedback, um, and and be willing to receive the feedback, uh, even if it's difficult to swallow. Man, that is so much easier said than done. I really feel like I, I, it's it's very important, and you can say it like that. But when when the ego gets involved, I feel like it's just so hard. It is. It's not easy, but it is definitely uh, the breakfast of champions. <laughs> and what is it that uh, nothing good is easy and nothing easy is good? That's right. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Ross. And uh, we hope to thank you so much for your time. We hope to get to chat to you, uh, chat with you at some point again in the future. Gib, it was a pleasure. Thank you, sir. I have to tell you, I love the uh, the one thing. I'm always looking for the one thing. It's like on the radio show, we're looking for the three things. Right. Um, do you have do you have uh, interviewees that have a hard time giving you the one thing? Oh, everybody always is like, "Wow, oh, why, why did you? Oh, I get." And then they always come up with something, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. And Sometimes it's it's just positivity. Sometimes a lot of people say, you know, journal or pray or meditate. That's a big right, one that I get right, often. Right. Um, and uh, you know, some people say exercise every day. It's, it, it varies. But yeah, everybody always has that when you when you really press them. They, some people make their bed. They always have one key habit for you to do with, and that's it for our show today. Speaking of, thank you guys so much for listening. If you like Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, please share this with somebody in your life that you think needs to hear this. If you would like to follow up with us, facebook.com slash John Tesh is where we spend most of our time. We post videos there. We go live. We respond to every comment and message. Also, John is on Twitter, at John Tesh, on Instagram, at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I am Gib Gerard, facebook.com slash Gib Gerard, at Gib Gerard on Instagram and Twitter. And if you reach out to me and have any questions, I try to respond to every message on all of those platforms as well. So we try to be as involved with you as possible. But most importantly, we cannot do this without you. So we just want to thank you guys for listening.
Nice job walking up the music. Don't forget to come see us live in concert. Go to teshmusic.com and you will see Gib Drawer not only doing comedy, but playing amazing music. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs>